John Winthrop the Younger, who was the first governor of Connecticut colony. This guy was an alchemist. He's, he's somebody who went to Europe to find Rosicrucians. And when he couldn't find any, he came back and he decided to live according to Rosicrucian ideals. And he did. He, when he moved to America, I often tell this story because it's just so great. He had crates full of books and manuscripts that belonged to John D. And he had all this alchemical stuff. And he marked the crates with John D.'s Monus Hieroglyphica. And I've compared that to a Southern preacher's son having pentagrams on his luggage. luggage. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome Ronnie Pontiac to talk about his book, American Metaphysical Religion. Ronnie Pontiac worked as Manley P. Hall's research assistant, screener, and designated substitute lecturer for seven years. As well as being a writer and occult researcher, he's a musician and has produced award-winning documentaries, including films on the Cuban revolutionary hip-hop group Los Aldeano, and the Seattle grunge band The Gits, whose singer Mia Zapata was tragically raped and murdered in 1993. Ronnie lives in Los Angeles with his wife and frequent collaborator Tamara Spivey. His recent book, American Metaphysical Religion, is an exploration of American occult and spiritual history, from colonial-era alchemists to 20th century teachers. Most Americans believe that the United States was founded by pious Christians, However, as Ronnie reveals, from the very beginning, America was a vibrant blend of beliefs from all four corners of the world. This episode is brought to you by MedicinePath.me, a community platform and private counseling practice dedicated to helping individuals lead more authentically soulful lives through heart-to-heart conversations, spiritual guidance and mentoring, and access to practice and learning resources for healing, growth, and transformation. Whether you're looking to explore a more soul-oriented and creative alternative to conventional therapy and counseling, or looking for learning and practice resources to support you on your journey of healing, growth, and transformation, Medicine Path is here for you, wherever you are on your journey. Visit medicinepath.me to explore our range of offerings, including one-to-one counseling and mentoring, yoga and breathwork practice resources, video workshops, books on psychedelic integration and soul recovery, and access to a growing private community and online school of soul studies. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Ronnie Pontiac on The Medicine Path. Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie, thanks a lot for making the time to speak with me today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to see we're both having a good hair day as well, you know. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I know. 
we understand I, uh, each other. I, I I was just remembering. Um, I saw a video where two druids were talking, uh, modern druids um, from the UK, and one of them was joking with the other that you should never trust a prophet who doesn't have curly hair. So, like all real prophets <laughs> really? have curly hair. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I think I can I can imagine exceptions. <laughs> I often think about cavaliers when when uh, when I'm meeting podcasters with long hair, especially if they're sporting the mustache and the small beard. It always I'm, I'm like I'm happy to meet a fellow cavalier. <laughs> cavalier, what exactly is a cavalier? Because I know I know the term, but um, I'm thinking maybe something like the Three Musketeers. But um, it was actually a group that we probably wouldn't want to be involved with. Um, they were the English royalists at the time when there was a battle between Cromwell and the Royalists. And so you could tell the Puritans because they always had their hair very controlled and generally did not like facial hair. They were not allowed to laugh very loudly. They were not allowed to run or dance. The Cavaliers generally had long hair and very stylish beards and they liked to wear big cod pieces and they loved to drink and were, were famous as what they called wenchers. And so they could not be more different, both, both representing examples of English temperament, but they were so very different. And I do believe that America, by the way, inherited that, that psychological split. Mm. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk about uh, when we get into your book, American Metaphysical Religion. Um, but I would love to, you know, I think you've lived, lived a pretty interesting life. And I was hoping that you could take us back to uh, just before you met Manly P. Hall, the author of the uh, famous Secret Teachings of All Ages. Um, uh, because I'm interested in like what it was like for you before you met him and how that meeting changed things. Because I, I feel like that was a pivotal moment in your life that led to you eventually actually writing this sprawling history of uh, metaphysical religion in America. Would you mind just taking us back there and um, you know, we can just follow along? Sure. I was very lost as a kid. I had atheist parents who were war survivors who were much older than parents usually are. My whole family were war survivors and they were not very settled into American culture. They, they were rather afraid of it. And so I was overprotected and overcontrolled and not allowed to, uh, to actually become an American kid. I actually spoke with an accent when I first entered school. And, and my, I was also a runt. I was really a small kid for my age. And I got beat up a lot. I grew up in a rough neighborhood a lot of gang activity, and I was beat up by all sides. I had no one to to turn to. And so I got really bitter as I hit early teenage. And by the time I hit late teenage, uh, I had had a relationship that didn't go all that great with kind of a girl that was in the, the range of hippie sort of uh, mentality and um she wound up wound up cheating on me and dumping me. So that even furthered this this attitude I had. So by the time I was seventeen, I decided this was all bullshit. 
and I wasn't going to play along with anybody. I dyed my hair black, started wearing all black. I started a nihilist band that was uh, became very popular among uh, bikers who were white supremacists of all things. And and I had this attitude of just wanting to ruin every party and and be as destructive as I could and and hopefully die young and famous was basically the plan. And by the time I was 17, 18, I was drawing these huge crowds that uh, it was kind of an Altamont almost scene. There was a lot of violence going on. Very fortunate that nothing really terrible happened to anyone, including myself, while I was doing those things. And the first turning point for me was when I was at a, a rather notorious club and there was a, a girl there who looked completely out of place. And she was terrified because there was a group of about five guys that were cornering her and she didn't know who to turn to. And she had been warned by the club owner to stay away from me. But for some reason, she she chose me as her champion. I guess I was probably the most threatening looking guy in the club. And and I I was really no one had ever asked me for help. I'd never been in a position like that. I, I really felt moved. And also the fear that she felt was so obvious. So I, I backed them down with the help of my drummer. And, and then I made sure she got home safely. And of course, we wound up falling in love. And she wound up moving in with me. And she's my wife now. And that was a huge turning point for me because she was so different, a very quiet person, but very positive in her own way. And that she didn't really understand what I was trying to do and or why I was trying to do it. And she found what I was doing to be somewhat reprehensible. And she believed that there was a better me in there somewhere than this, this hmm. petty criminal and rabble rouser. And then not too long after that, uh, my, my, my experience of spirituality and, and metaphysics was very limited at that point. Uh, when I started my band, I was drawn to, uh, the usual psychopathic uh, literature, Hitler. Uh, I was looking into Anton LaVey and Crowley and Spare, although I wouldn't consider them at all psychopathic. Just looking for power, and I was I was disappointed by what I found in these writers because, in actuality, they, they're very creative and they've got positive things to teach. And that's not what I wanted. That's about all I had. And I really thought there were only two sides to the story, monotheism on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have to go with Satan because that's all there was. Having been raised atheist, I, I really didn't have much education in, in religion. I had some light teachings and that was about it because my uh, family leaned in on my parents about he's got to know his heritage kind of stuff. But none of that stuck with me. So one book that did appeal to me when I was a kid was a book called Atlantis, Mother of Empires that I saw in the shop. And it was this big tome. And I don't know why, but it it just really struck my imagination. And I I wanted to shoplift the thing. And I, it was way too big. And I, I remembered it for a <laughs> long time. And later I found out, oddly enough, that the book was by the architect that had built PRS for Manly Hall. So in a weird way, I was I was intuiting this this future and I I got some money meant for a haircut and I took it to uh, the Bodhi Tree bookstore, which was an incredible bookstore in Los Angeles for years. It's no longer there. And I was looking in their used branch, which was a little house next door, really quaint and charming. And I was looking for a copy of Atlantis, Mother of Empires, but they didn't have it. But I did find this this tome it was a sixth edition which is a reduced size but still a large 
edition of the Secret Teachings of All Ages with thick paper, but this was when this is when it was called the Encyclopedic Outline. And so it it seemed to me to be this ancient book. I I thought the guy was surely gone, the author. And and but it appealed to me so much, the art in it and the things it was talking about. Just at first glance, I thought, oh wow, I've got to have this. So I put it on layaway and eventually I paid for it, brought it home and started to read it chapter by chapter. And it just I felt like somebody had just I felt like I've been living in a closet my whole life, like in some claustrophobic dark space where I, I didn't know what was going on or why I was here or what the point of any of it was. And I had no faith in anything except nature. And here was this book dedicated to the rational soul of nature. And it had all this amazing information and art by people who had risked their lives really in many cases to experience and to share the information that they they had discovered and i was so moved and so inspired by that so at the time i was going through a major earthquake paranoia uh, brought on by some friends of mine who were moving to virginia beach because the edgar casey teachings had really gotten to them and they thought that california was going to wind up on the bottom of the sea any minute hmm. and they got to me too and so I went to them to talk to them and the matriarch of the family, this, this wonderful Carney woman, really cool person. She, I told her about the book and she said, Oh, well, you know, he's still lecturing just down the street from you. Really. It's a short drive. Well, I was stunned. Really? Yeah. Every Sunday morning at 11 AM for a dollar. <laughs> I can, this is in, this is in Los Angeles. Yeah. In Las Feliz area, a yes. suburb of mm -hmm. Los Angeles. And so he was at his philosophical research society, PRS, uh, doing a lecture every Sunday for decades and he was still doing it. So I was afraid to go, um, knowing who I'd been and what I had done. I just thought that when I walked in there, he'd see stains all over my soul. Although I wouldn't mm -hmm. have put it that way then because I was still an atheist. And I, I was afraid to go. I just thought I'd be rejected and, and I couldn't handle that because I was so moved by everything I'd found in this one book. But eventually my, my girlfriend and my friends prevailed on me and they said, you should really go down there. I mean, he's really good, getting up there and it's an opportunity to see him. And, and why would you miss that? So I worked up the courage and we went down there on this beautiful afternoon and those people were all so kind and nice. And they were talking about every, all the conversations I heard snippets of were so fascinating. I heard all kinds of words I'd never heard before. And, and then when I sat down and listened to him lecture, he looked right at me and he said, people who have paranoia about earthquakes, irrational fears about earthquakes, because they have guilt about how they've lived their lives. I later found out that he couldn't see me. His, his vision was not very good by that point, but he somehow managed to do that, look right at me and say that to me. And then later when I became his assistant and his screener, I ran into so many people, <clears throat> excuse me, who had the same experience, who would be at the lecture and he would look right at them and he would say something that seemed to be a direct message for them that they'd been waiting to hear. Hmm. So, Obviously, I was now I was really impressed. And <clears throat> I, I was like, I've got to be around this guy. I've got to be around this community. So excuse me for a moment here. Yeah, I wonder before moving on, if you could just 
paint the picture for us of what the Philosophical Research Society was like. You mentioned um, a book by the architect. So mm -hmm. I'm guessing this wasn't just like a converted craftsman home or something. No. Um, but could you describe like what the building was like and like how sure. large the meetings were on those Sundays? Yeah. Well, the, it was beautiful. It is beautiful architecture. It's a combination of Mayan and Egyptian. Uh, some call it Neo-Mayan. Um, it's It has... For instance, there's a big library, and the library has these carved wooden doors with Confucius and Plato on them. And mm -hmm. then there's a gift shop, this quaint little glass-windowed gift shop, in which he would sometimes put little treasures for very cheap prices. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a lot of stuff in the air over here. So you could find like a, an amazing tea set from Japan that would be anywhere else would be hundreds and hundreds of dollars for his like $30 or something. It was just a kind of a gift that he did to his community. Then there was a big auditorium and you could seat a couple hundred people in there who would be in there every Sunday. And, and that had a portrait of him when you walked in and there was a big velvet chair sitting on the, the stage. And that's where he would come and sit and give his lectures and then there was his office, which was adjacent to the library. And then above it, or connected to the library, which was two is two stories, there's a lecture room. And so, and then there's a shipping area with some offices connected to it. So it was this wonderful little complex in this kind of pinkish, amberish almost. Not, I don't want you to think it was too bright, the colors, but like a, a muted pink amber sort of color. And with these Mayan kind of decorations around it and then an Egyptian statue here or there with a with an inspiring message to the truth seekers of all time was the was the plaque that was on it and and then you would you'd go inside the library and beyond this incredible collection of metaphysical books there was a collection of art from all over the world so there was a giant Tibetan prayer wheel and there were these huge Buddhas. There was this one that I really loved that it was a Buddha with all these little Buddhas connected to it. And, and so it was just a place where you were, everything that your eyes fell on was, was inspiring, a cute little rose garden. And they would have refreshments after the lecture there. You have a little something to drink and some cookies that people brought along. And there was one woman in particular who would bring these gorgeous flower arrangements to his every lecture and put them up on the stage. So it really was a almost a family community kind of feeling, but but it didn't have any of the pretense that you normally find in those kind of communities. They everything was very humble and and down home. And I guess this was because of the time that we were there. We were really lucky. Uh, Tamara and I got there at a time when when they were all much older. The famous people that used to hang around there weren't there anymore. The place was being run by women who were mostly the widows of men who had run the place. But it made it this idyllic, supportive little environment. And hmm. so Tamara and I decided we want to volunteer. We want to be near this and help it in some way. So the next day, on Monday morning, we went down there. And they were gracious enough to let us have a meeting with one of the people that was running the place. And she asked us questions and Tamara gave all the right answers because Tamara had office skills and, and things that they wanted. So they said, Oh yeah, we could definitely have a position for you. And what about you? And I didn't have anything as you can imagine. I mean, what was I going to say? I know a lot of bikers I used to, you know, it was just useless. And <laughs> I could tell I, I wasn't, it wasn't going to end well. 
but she did ask me, do you have any facility with languages? And, and I said, well, I grew up around a lot of languages because my, my parents and my family were all from Europe. So there was Russian and French and there was Polish and German. And, and so I, I was hearing these things when I grew up. And she said, okay, well, we'll get back to you if we can think of anything for you. But Tamara, let us know. <laughs> and so yeah. went home. I was a, at that point in my life, I was, I was still in every way just messed up. So I was like, well, you're not going to have a job working down there and they don't even want me. Screw that. You know, it was that kind of attitude. <laughs> Are you yeah. still like in your twenties at this point? So still pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So and, the attitude was still kind of fuck the world, yeah. but there was like a ray of sunshine trying to creep into your life. And exactly. And so yeah. then to my shock, I got a call a day or two later where they told me that Manly Hall wanted to meet me. Wow. Okay. How old, is, <laughs> how old is he at this time? He was, I think, around 80. I'm not wow. sure of his exact age, but he was definitely either 79 or 81 or somewhere in that area. And, and so, how long would he uh, lecture for on Sundays? 90 minutes without any notes. So he's, he still had a, like a lot of energy. He was amazing. I, I'll, as I finish the story, I will tell you a little about that. Yeah. So... So what happened was they said, he wants to meet you. I, I went down there. They led me to his office, this beautiful big room with all this art in it, this huge Japanese altar and this carved Chinese desk that he sat behind was massive. And the carvings were incredible. And the whole room had this, I've never been in a place with a feeling like that. It feels like what a temple should feel like, tranquil, just charged with some sort of a, of a energy that felt so comforting and 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 powerful and so he was sitting behind his desk he had he had went two women on either side of him standing and these were the women who ran the place and they were kind of giving me the skunk eye and he he said come on in and make yourself miserable in this kind of wc fields voice and you know have a seat so i sat down and he asked me a couple questions and he had a big stack of paper in front of him and he pushed it in front of me and he said this is the galley for my alchemical bibliography and i want you to work on it for me hmm. <laughs> I, I said i don't know what a galley is i don't know what a bibliography is and I, the only reason i know anything about alchemy is your book and i am definitely not the right person for this i don't have the education he said no no you'll be fine i'll i'll, I'll guide you don't worry about it go ahead take yeah, it and get it to work like yeah, he's handing you a curriculum for your education right there, I would think. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah, you have no idea because what, what happened next was even more incredible. So so his vice president, a very serious woman uh, who'd served in the military and, and had kind of ran the whole financial side of the place, she had run around the side of the library and, and headed me off. And she said, give me that. That was a mistake. And that was a relief. I, you know, I really, I mean, I felt good about that. Good. Right. I mean, I'm glad to meet him, but no, this would have been a disaster. <laughs> Get home. There's a call from his secretary. Mr. Hall, you in his office, first thing tomorrow morning. Okay. I go in there. Now he's by himself. Pushes the galley back in front of me. He says, this is your job. I say again, I, I don't have the skills for this. I would love to do this, but I, I don't want to let you down. He says, I will meet with you 
every morning and let you know what I think you should work on. And I will have lunch with you in the vault whenever possible so that you can look at the books and ask me questions about them. Now, how about that for a curriculum? His vault mm -hmm. was this huge safe filled with rare manuscripts and books, incredibly rare. And I was able to pick up anyone I wanted and have him tell me things about it. And so he said, then in the afternoon, we're about to call it a day, I will go over the work with you and, and see how you've done. And so you'll be fine. And he said, from now on, you take orders only from me. If anybody else contradicts anything I tell you, you come yeah. tell me. That's great. Yeah. So I couldn't, I could not say no to that arrangement. And it turned yeah. out to be a, not only the beginning of this book that we're discussing, but also my opportunity to be around this man who in his eighties, not only was he able to give a 90 minute lecture without any notes with dropping names and dates and never making a mistake, it seemed, but he he would be working on multiple things at once. So he taught me how to do this. He, he would work on a book, two books, three books at the same time, each at a different stage of completion. He would be working on articles for his journal that came out monthly. He would be deciding what lectures he would be giving for the following season. He would be overseeing the business and, and everything else, meeting with people, because he had a lot of people who came to him seeking help. And I always thought of him as a last resort for people. They, they would get into trouble mm -hmm. doing things that amplified underlying problems. And they would come to him asking, what do I do about this entity? What do I do about this dimension I can't close? Or what do I do about... And eventually, he came to trust me enough and Tamara enough that he he made us his screeners because there were too many people wanting to meet him and he didn't have mm -hmm. time as he got older he did that's one way he slowed down was i can't meet everybody that that comes to me i need somebody to screen this and his secretary used to do it for him but she had so much work too working with him taking dictation for the books and and uh, overseeing production and all that so that was also an incredible education to see who came to him, to see what they wanted, to see what kind of damage right. can happen to people. And so and he could also say to me. There's a book I need for this article, you're going to find it up in the second story on the right corner, it'll be in the second shelf. This is the title, the covers read <laughs> over and over again. So his mind and his energy level were just incredible. It changed my whole concept of aging, because I'd been around people who, as they age, became very uh, fragile and angry and frightened. And here was this this incredible genius just popping out books. And you could you can argue, I think, that maybe his last books were not at the level of the earlier books, but they were still very useful, very helpful and fascinating. And he was still quite eloquent. And mm -hmm. so it was it was very impressive. Yeah. You know, as you uh, describe him and and the kind of scene around him and this temple to uh, I don't know the occult arts or the esoteric arts that he created, uh, what I'm seeing a lot of parallel between him and Carl Jung, and it you know with like a kind of exhausted exhaustive knowledge of uh, all these esoteric things and uh, 
being someone who uh, people went to for help when they had, you know, reached their limit. Uh, I mean, would you would you say that that's kind of accurate that he's in a way a kind of a, an American Carl Jung, but maybe not one who's uh, so afraid to embrace his identity as uh, an occult scholar or practitioner. Right. Yes. I, I, I think, well, first they, they were in contact at one point. Mm. Jung was asking a hall for copies of manuscripts, alchemical manuscripts that he had, because during, I think it was during the forties. So they couldn't actually, he couldn't come to Los Angeles to see them. And he wanted a, any kind of copy that could be made so that he could examine these manuscripts. Mm-hmm. There's also a book that, that Manley Hall wrote, I think it's called Disciplines of Self-Realization or Disciplines of Unfoldment, something self-realization. I don't quite remember it right now, but that was certainly influenced heavily by Jung. Mm-hmm. And I do see them as, as being similar in ways, uh, in the sense that both of them were such appreciators of world culture spirituality mm-hmm. and art and such uh, such attention to symbolism and the meaning behind symbolism so that you definitely see a similarity in their interest in in how to interpret experiences or how the 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 conscious and unconscious may may work and communicate with each other or or in the very kinds of disciplines that can be done to improve one's life and i did have a conversation with him once where I asked him if he had it all to do again, would he change anything about what he had done? And this brings us to the fact that earlier in his life, he was he was much more, uh, let's use the word aggressive, as, as, an, as somebody that interviewed me not too long ago used about the way that a lot of metaphysical teachers have a certain kind of aggressiveness in their belief system and in the way that they present it. And mm-hmm. at the time that I knew him, there was none of that. I mean, it was so, I don't even know how to explain it. It was, I often used Taoist. Kind of like it, yeah, like um, becoming more at ease, uh, not feeling so maybe compelled to um, speak up or to, to be forceful in the way of communicating. Yes. And also yeah. less concerned about the, the, um, the power aspect of it, if you will, less oh. concerned with with that and more concerned with with how to find the harmony in life and to move right, in like that you harmony. said, more Taoist. Yeah. yeah. And so, so and he less was about it, manipulating elemental forces and more um, working with them, collaborating exactly. in harmony with. Exactly. Yeah. You could say nice. perhaps that he switched from a metaphysician to a mystic. Maybe that's one way to put it, depending on one's definition of those words. But I've heard those words defined in that way, that metaphysics, excuse me, like magic is a practical approach and that uh, mysticism is is more seeking the harmony. Or we could even go further back and look at Iamblichus and, and say Plotinus. And Plotinus is saying that if you want to reach divine consciousness, if you want to to really understand the good, the true, and the beautiful, you can climb the ladder of beauty using the the intellect of the heart, right? And you can you can see the good and the true and the beautiful, starting with something that's perhaps just a physical <clears throat> object or person, and then 
moving up that ladder until you reach the one. Whereas Iamblichus <laughs> said, no, you can't do that. The only way to achieve that is by divine grace. And the proper way to achieve divine grace is through ritual so that you can, you can actually attune yourself to the divine. Now, they're both doing the same thing. One is a more active yeah. and one a more passive approach. But I feel that in the early days, he was more along the Iamblichus lines of, line of things. And he was writing a lot about the occult. He wrote about ceremonial magic. And he's, his statements were very bold. He made bold statements about America and all kinds of um, stuff that was reminiscent of, to me, of Theosophy and of Blavatsky, who were huge influences on him. And Blavatsky could be quite militant, as we know. And But when I knew him... He was like this old Chinese sage mixed up with a little bit of Maslow, maybe. And, and he was so gracious and charming and funny. And I mean, he, I mean, one of the things that he did, uh, Tamara wrote a memoir uh, about our friendship with him, in which he discusses these things more eloquently than I am. But, but for instance, with her, he would just make her laugh. We would be having a deep discussion with, with his wife, Marie, and with him and then when no one was looking, he'd turn around and he'd make some weird face at her or something just to make her laugh. And and she would. They became really good friends. And I know that people would ask me, well, what did he keep by his bed? Like, what did he read at night? And what he kept by his bed were joke and cartoon books. And that's also... Funny, I, that's what and, popped into my head is like joke books. Yeah, You're right. Wow. And And stamp books. He loved collecting stamps. He loved looking at the various stamps. And so... He just was, he was so wholesome on a level. And I don't think he was in the beginning. Now, Marie said that when she met him, he was a, a scary customer. And you can see this in some of his older pictures where he's really dramatic. And he's looking sort of like a, a warlock in, the, in a 1930s movie or something. And, <laughs> and she said that he lived in this creepy Frank Lloyd Wright house. It's the same house that they used in Blade Runner and in the house on Haunted Hill. Uh, he was allowed to live there because the rain would come in and the bees were, would make big nests in it. And the owner just couldn't handle it. And he was an admirer of Manly Hall. So he said, why don't you live there? And he would have these big parties there with swamis and Hollywood actresses and all kinds of stuff going on. And she said he had a, as she put it, a creepy dwarf manservant. I don't know anything <laughs> about that except what she said. And that he had blackout curtains on all the windows. And when you'd come in there at noon and, and it would be dark as night. So that, I didn't know that Manly Hall. but He had a flair for the dramatic. Obviously. He did. Yeah. Very much so. And, and then she claimed that she was the, the reason for the big change. Because she said that once they got married, she said that she made sure that he got up in the morning and had a good German breakfast <laughs> and all the windows were <laughs> opened. No more dwarf manservant. So yeah, the man that I met, effect, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. So the man that I met was so not like that. I didn't know that he had been friends with mayors and governors, and that he'd he'd had stars around him and and all that. I mean, there was nothing like that going. On. A little bit. There were people like John Denver and Burl Ives that were hanging out with him, but it was so different. It was such a the cars in the lot, you know, were, were, were humble, middle-class, lower middle-class. That was his following. And he was, he loved to talk about 
really deep. He loved Neoplatonism, for example, and he used to give classes in it. But he found that for most of his following, he they didn't really need that. Like they could use a little bit of it. But the point was, how do I apply this so that my life is better? And so right. he would he became quite masterful at being able to take ancient wisdom and apply it to everyday problems. Distill it, yeah. The real alchemy, right? Mm-hmm. Distilling it down to some uh, uh, some life-giving essence or something. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, I want to see the kind of biopic about him, <laughs> uh, especially back in those times, you know. Um, if you have yeah. not read Tamara's book, which is called uh, Making the Ordinary Extraordinary, my seven years of in a cult Los Angeles with Manly Palmer Hall. That's the title. It's Inner Traditions. Put it out, right. um, I think, 2021, the end of 2021. It's it's a short book, a beautiful little read. And she really captures what it was like being there because we'd, we'd hang out with them. You know, they invited us to their house all the time and we'd go out to restaurants, their favorite restaurant with them. And they were so kind to us. They were just, they were like grandparents that we had never had. And, and they, I still can't believe it. I, I mean, people have asked me, yeah. why did they choose? You know, why were you chosen to do that? Why was this uh-huh. your luck? And I, the only answer I give is that I think that he just he was really a believer in the flow of 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 Lee of the of the Tao, and he he he. I think that he needed somebody who had some knowledge of languages to finish this thing because the guy who had done the lion's share of the work on it refused to do a couple editorial decisions that were a big deal to him, which involved taking out references to bodily fluids that he had included in his records of what the some of the recipes were in these alchemical manuscripts. As an academic, he knew that that was something that would be of interest to academia. But Manley Hall thought, I don't, I've seen too many people get in trouble doing this stuff. <laughs> And and I also my following the people who will probably buy the book they're not going to want to read those words mm, <laughs> in that yeah. place it's supposed to be full of inspiration so he wanted that out and and the academic refused right. and so that's that's what gave me my opening and that guy was very kind to me he he really helped me uh, get get started in that task and so it really it really was i think just that he i walked in with that language facility at the right moment and he trusted nature mm-hmm. and he yeah. thought if well this must be the right person and i turned out to do i was the right person i did a really good job on it he he thought so and and i didn't have that much to do but i was able to contribute in some ways and and for me of course it was just a, a amazing all the books that he told me about, all the things, I mean, this, the triangular St. Germain manuscript, I, I got to hold that and, and talk to him. What is this? What does this mean? What is the translation of it? And Yeah, so it does sound like you were really the kind of perfect person. Um, and it sounds like he was just an incredibly intuitive guy as well. So perhaps he could see that you were the right person for the job and that it would also have something to do with your karma or your destiny to to meet him and get this education and kind of pull yourself out of this uh, darkness that you'd been in when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was an amusing interaction where in the early days where I was just working on the, uh, the bibliography and he was working on one of his astrological 
uh, articles for the journal. And, and I had the stupidity to say to him, do you really believe in that stuff? Like you really think that the stars in some way influence our behavior? He was tickled by that. And he said, well, he said, you know, you don't really have the knowledge to debate me on the subject. So let me introduce you to this wonderful woman, Peggy, who's a great astrologer, and she'll teach you enough about astrology so that you can come back and debate me about it. Well, of course, Peggy blew my mind <laughs> and I never debated him about it because there was clearly something going on there. And I went about studying it myself, but he was typically doing things like that. Also, his jokes mm -hmm. were always had some kind of meaning in them. He, he had a way of telling you a joke and making you laugh. And then a half an hour later, you'd realize that, that he was actually talking to you about something. Mm. Very charming. So the my book actually started in the vault when I was having lunch with him. And I saw on the bottom shelf this big leather-bound book. I, I love these big tomes, so I grabbed it. I, I said, can I, can I pick up that one? He said, sure. So I picked it up and open it. And it says the Platonist. It's actually a, a series of issues of, new, of a newspaper that was published in the 1880s near St. Louis, Missouri. And this is the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Hmm. And at that time, St. Louis, although it was just beginning to become industrialized, was a cow town. It was still the principal hub for, for cattle. And so I could not understand how this thing came to be. And when I opened yeah. it up and really looked through it, I found that there were, for example, um, translations by Thomas Taylor of the authors we've already mentioned, Iamblichus and Plotinus, and of course, Plato. But there were also translations by someone named Thomas Johnson. And there were articles by, by this fellow Alexander Wilder that I knew had been involved somewhat with Blavatsky. And, and then even more stunning was Abner Doubleday, who was a Civil War general on the Union side, who supposedly fired the first shot at Fort Sumter on the Union mm -hmm. side, he was falsely credited with inventing baseball, but a real American character, a mainstream kind of guy. He had done a translation of Alephus Levi writing about transcendental magic in there. So I, I was... I asked Mr. Hall about it. What, what is this? <laughs> he didn't know much about it either. There just wasn't a lot of information available. That really got me. And I, that really is the beginning. That's the first thread that I pulled on that turned into all the things in this book. And eventually I found a book written in 1962 called Platonists of, um, of the Midwest, and that explains some of the things, right? I, I mean, mean, it just seems so incongruous. It's that, so that was weird. The biggest and thing with your book for me was just dispelling a lot of these ideas about I had about uh, early American settlers being um, kind of Christian Puritans. You know, that's yeah. that's what we see in the movies. It's either that or the, you know, gunfight at the OK Corral. Uh, yeah. But to hear that there's Platonists in the Midwest in the 1800s is like. What? And it what, was very popular. <laughs> you know, I pictured yeah. I pictured um, Western town, wooden sidewalk. There's a light on. It's an oil lamp up in some window. And there's some weird guy in there doing the Platonist. That wasn't <laughs> the case at all. It was very popular. There were there were big clubs in the Midwest that would meet to have parties to celebrate Plato's birthday. And 
they had generally they were predominantly women. And there was this fellow, Hiram Jones, Hiram K. Jones, who was, they called him the American Plato. And he would lecture for hours about Plato and, and, and Platonism. And, and this dovetailed with what was happening at Concord with the New England Transcendentalists. So Emerson was in touch with the, the people involved with the Platonist, and they would often turn to the editor, Thoreau and Alcott, and he would turn to the editor of the Platonist if they had questions about, about any of the Platonic doctrine. And so sometimes the Platonists would lecture there, and other times that they would come out to visit. So Emerson was always sending letters to this guy living just outside St. Louis. And it was actually a vital culture and big newspapers and magazines were carrying articles about Plato, things like, oh, there's a new translation coming out from Yale. And it was a big deal to people. And they would they had these apologetic kind of apologist uh, uh, articles saying, well, you know, this platonic stuff really is very much what led into Christianity. So in studying this, we're studying our mm -hmm. own Christian roots and understanding them better. Really weird. And it influenced yeah. spiritualism greatly because mm -hmm. these concepts were floating around everywhere. And so when spiritualism began to come up with its own doctrines, so much of it had this platonic feeling to it. And mm -hmm. so that is where the book started in that conversation, seeing that book and trying to figure out what, what that was. And so when I was touring with my band, I would go to libraries and I would go to bookstores and looking for things, just looking for more information. And the beautiful thing was that around 2000, there was just this sea change in academia where esoteric studies were suddenly becoming more acceptable. It was slow, but there were articles and books coming out about things that had never been written about before or that revolutionized our views of things that had only been written about by esotericists who did not have access to the archives that these people had access to. So that was just incredible. And it led to me writing a blog in the 2010s about American metaphysical religion, just trying to share some of the things I had found. And to my shock, academics contacted me they liked what I had written and they, they, one was actually inspired to, to go and work on the Thomas Johnson material and on the history of the Platonists. And he became a mentor, uh, K. Paul Johnson, a great scholar, and many others were, have been really incredible. I mean, in this book, I've had so much help from academics. It's, it's really humbling. But the information that they have about all of the interests that we have, Rosicrucianism in Europe, or if you prefer Rosicrucianism in the colonies, or if you prefer Rosicrucian orders that developed in America, we have now books upon books about these subjects and articles that open up whole new vistas. And that's part of the inspiration behind getting this book published was I wanted people like me who, who are enthusiasts about this material and who really love it to to have access to it because most people don't know the books are there and if they do they can't afford them and the other thing that i was lucky with was that when i was first putting this book together google and and amazon still let you search almost every book that they had archived all the way so i was able to to access these academic books through those two sites and read anything I needed in them. I could, the indexes, I mean, you could just search any book looking for the subjects that you were looking for. 
and then also being guided to materials even now. For example, uh, Tamara and I have written a book um, about the influence of the Orpheus legend and also of the Orphic mysteries in Western culture, because it's it's another one of those subjects. When you see how much influence it has had, it's stunning. And we also did a new trans. It's not really a translation. I wouldn't say, even though it is a translation, but what we tried to do was to add the details of cult because our thinking was that the Orphic hymns are pretty boring. They're very formulaic. And the reason is that the priests already knew all the characteristics of the deities they were addressing, but we don't. So we wanted to add back these details of cult so people could really feel the correspondences. And so it is being published in August by Inner Traditions, but we, we've had so many editors going through that and, and, and we've worked on it so hard. And, and I was very lucky to have Jay Bregman, who's a great platonic scholar, look at it. He found 10 stupid mistakes in it. Just so, and this is after other academics had been through it. So I really feel so grateful to them. And I highly recommend to anyone writing in this area, this old idea that they, the esotericists hate the academics and the academics hate the esotericists, which I still run into a lot. That's, that was not my experience. And I, I, I really encourage people who are writing on these subjects to reach out to the academics who write in those areas because they're thrilled mm -hmm. too, to have people who are genuinely enthusiastic, get the material that they've worked so hard to bring out into the world. And, exactly. And yeah. People who are reading academic papers, it's, you know, maybe 50 people, read a particular paper on an esoteric subject. But one of the great things about your book is that you present it in a way that's very accessible and um, good storytelling. Thank you, know? you. And man, it is a sprawling story. There are so many wild yeah. characters in early American history. And like I said before, really dispelling the perception that it was all uh, Christian Puritans or um, you know, wild men of the West or something. There was yeah. a real richness and diversity to the spiritual practices. Yeah. Like at one point in the book, uh, someone was writing about these early settlers and it was like less than 30% actually went to church and even fewer had Bibles in the homes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the numbers that, uh, we're seeing now in the U S yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, John Butler in 1979, he he studied this and he came to the shocking conclusion that this is after 1650 in New England, that only about one third of the adults ever belonged to a church at all. And and then when he went into the middle and southern colonies just before the American Revolution, only 15 percent identified themselves as being connected to any particular church. And we do have various records. We have a New York governor and we also have um, a uh, some preachers complaining about how they can't get these people into the pews. They, they just don't want to attend. And so this is, I think, partially because so many people came here to get away from from being forced into some kind of conformity by authority. And and this saturates American culture because they kept moving further west or further south or just to get a, or north just to get away from people who are telling them what to do. And 
you find this in its, I think, in its most dramatic form in the story of, um, well, I'm trying to figure out which one to go to first. I guess John Winthrop, who was the mm-hmm. the first governor of of Boston Colony, and and who uh, was consider we consider him to have been like the the Puritans Puritan, in in the way we're taught history. Well, his son John Winthrop the younger, who was the first governor of Connecticut Colony. This guy was an alchemist. He's he's somebody who went to Europe to find Rosicrucians. And when he couldn't find any, he came back and he decided to live according to Rosicrucian ideals. And he did. He when he moved to America, I often tell this story because it's just so great. He had crates full of books and manuscripts that belonged to John D. And he had all this alchemical stuff. And he marked the crates with John D's Monus Hieroglyphica. And I've compared that to a Southern preacher's son having pentagrams on his luggage. <laughs> but this was not a, really a problem mm. because the Puritans were interested in alchemy. And, and so this fellow became an intelligencer. He, he was a hub, one of the hubs where, where all this cutting edge science and spirituality was was being shared by the the greatest minds of the time across Europe and and in America. And he was constantly trying to recruit them to come to America. And Mm -hmm. so he became, for example, an alchemical doctor who served the whole territory and who had famous medicines that apparently worked quite well. And he trained women to diagnose and dispense these colored packets that, that had each appropriate medication in it. He was mm-hmm. very famed for gold making. And but he was also interested in mining and refining. And he also got involved in tribal politics, protecting a tribe that was being uh, basically enslaved by a stronger tribe. One of the results of the diseases that the Europeans brought, uh, devastating so much of the population. And he got right in the middle of that and, and fairly successfully defended that tribe and actually got their some of their rights restored to them, including their their names. And he also was someone who was so adept at. So, for example, when the crown was trying to get soldiers out of the colonies, he would always figure out these ways. Well, I can't do it right now because we have to do this, but but I'm with you and we're going to send you. But they never were sent. Mm hmm. Eventually, he was disempowered by the crown, um, but but not before he had left this indelible impression on the area. And he is is proof that that the Puritans were not what we've been taught that they are. And so is Cotton Mather, by the way, because Cotton Mather in his eulogy for John Winthrop the Younger referred to him as Hermes Christianus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So this is like all kind of um, post-Renaissance, like where Marsilio Ficino was doing his darndest to um, show the Christians that they didn't need to be afraid of alchemy and astrology and that it was very uh, congruous with Christian teachings and things like that, trying to really syncretize them, right? Yes. So I'm guessing that he was maybe... um, kind of following in that tradition or even Paracelsus, it sounds like this alchemical physician Mm -hmm. and bringing that to America. Yes. You've got, you've got 
Paracelsus, you've got uh, Comenius, you've got uh, Giordano Bruno, Agrippa, uh, any kind of Platonic writing they could get their hands on. And of course, Ficino was such a, a central point for, for all of this, the rebirth of, of this idea. And, and he also is, is represented to some degree there. So it, it is certainly within that same tradition. I mean, they're encountering the Hermetica. And and they're they're it's so odd to find like German pietists who in the Rosicrucian side of their beliefs and practices are calling back to the Hermetica and to Egyptian and Neoplatonic concepts and trying to unify all of this into a, a greater universal reformation. Mm -hmm. Now, um, in researching your book, so there's this. I don't know, a story, a mythology about the founding of America and um, the influence of the Freemasons, uh, you know, where you can look at the architecture around Washington, D.C. and find all of these references to hermetic symbols. Um, how, you know, how true is that idea? There's a lot of Freemasonic influence going on. Now, I don't know that that Washington was was all designed and, and all future developments were pre-designed to have this Masonic. I'm not so sure about that. We don't really have a lot of evidence for that. And some of the assumptions that we hear most about, as I say in the book, fall on the wrong side of a protractor. But on the other hand, there's no Wait, question. What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> there's no question that there is free Masonic symbolism all over the place. And there's no question that they're what influencing. Do you, what do you mean by it falls on the wrong side of it? That sounds like a Manly P. Hall joke. You know, that, <laughs> but I want to know, like, what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, it's, we've heard, for example, that some of the alignments are, are aligned in a certain way to sunset and to, to, and, but if you actually go and you do the work, you find that that is not it's not so exact. So there's a romanticizing uh, or idealizing process that has been applied to this so much. And, and I have to say Manley Hall definitely contributed in some ways to this. There was a time when he was really into American exceptionalism and he was, he was pushing a lot of, of stories that one of the most famous was that there was somebody who showed up when the founding fathers were getting cold feet about signing the declaration of independence and that this person gave a very stirring speech that convinced them to, to sign it. And in various traditions, that's, that was an angel. It's also been said that that was St. Germain. And he too told this story, but it's actually a piece of fiction from a writer who was really famous in the early days of America. It was from a short story. I don't think he knew that. He probably heard about this through a Freemason and the Freemason probably did not know that it came from this author who, while he was famous then, is very obscure now. But there's a lot of this right. kind of. Yeah, they're like memes. Yes. Right. Yes. Like uh, there's one that I see all the time. It's, uh, you know, it's purported to be a speech by Chief uh, Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, how can you buy or sell the sky or the warmth of the land? It's strange to us. Like Soundgarden even turned those lyrics into a cover of Into the Void. Um, but it turns out that it was part of a, a play written by an American playwright in the 70s, this kind of like post-hippie romantic play. Uh, it's not actually attributed to Chief Seattle, but if you were to believe the meme, 
you know, and it's just repeated over and over and over yeah. again until it becomes a kind of pseudo truth or something. Yeah. Like so, even before the internet, we had to worry about uh, you know what it what is true and uh, fake news and all of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's something that impresses me so much about Manly Hall's work is that he did not have access to what we have. And, and you can, it's harder to find out what's true, especially for someone who's existing outside academia. And he had no choice but to do that anyway, because there was no place for what he was studying in academia, pretty much for all his life, maybe a little bit at the end. But the the focus on on what is true. And so I'll give you another example of this. Um, I have finished a book about uh, tentatively titled Rosicrucian Origins in, in Context that is going to be published by IT next year. And, and it's also based on new research. And one thing that we hear often about is the friendship between Robert Flood and Michael Meyer, and that these were probably actual Rosicrucians. And there's been so much new research that we find that there does not appear to have been any friendship or really any contact between them. And the only reference that anybody's been able to find is that Michael Meyer wrote some kind of nasty things about Robert Flood and his work that really don't sound like what a Rosicrucian would say about another Rosicrucian, even if they were being secretive about it. Now, of course, believers will say that this is all deliberate and it's meant to deflect. Right. It's all, yeah, disinformation and all right. Of that, right? Another story yeah. is that that when uh, Frederick, uh, the very unfortunate king of Bohemia, that was the center of so many Rosicrucian fantasies about a new hermetic emperor that would be crowned, that that his decision to to take that crown in the, the old stories that were told were that, that Princess Elizabeth, this fiery English stort that he married, was the one who told him to do it because his mother said, don't you dare do that. That's way too dangerous. You're going to insult the Habsburgs and the church will use this to take our lands because they're so rich. And supposedly he agreed with that. But then the story is told that Elizabeth Stuart came walking into the room with her plunging neckline and she delivered a stirring speech about how this was a calling from God and they had to do it. And this was a terrible disaster as a result. Well, the truth is, after 20 years of study of her papers, this new biography of her, which is superb, showed that she said, it's not my place to give you advice about this. You have to make the decision. Hmm. It's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And... Hmm. Even now, as you say, with the internet, it's hard to to tell what is accurate and what isn't. Not only in memes, but even when you're dealing with academia, I mean, you have to you have to look at every single book. You can miss things that that are in a Russian study that you didn't have access to, but actually has the right interpretation of this because they had access to archaeology that nobody had access to. And as various nations are kind of coming forward with all of this. We're, we're finding more and more of these materials. And what I'm excited about is that my understanding is that in the world of Islamic scholarship, in Islamic countries, that they're finally coming to grips or planning to come to grips with the fact that they have millions of books and manuscripts 
in archives that have never been looked through. And it's very likely that at least 50% of those materials are related to occult and to platonic and other pagan sources because they preserved so much of it. So there are these books that we always read about and wish that we could have read, A Life of Pythagoras, or, and they may have all of it. And it, it may eventually come out of those archives. And I also wonder about the Vatican and what they have mm -hmm. stashed in their yeah. archives. So hopefully someday that, that this human heritage of all this incredible information will be made available. It'll be super exciting to be able to read those lost words again. Yeah. Do you feel like there is some kind of hermetic revival going on now? Yeah, I think so, because there's a combination of things. Social media has has bypassed so many of the obstacles that were in the way of young people encountering these materials. And they are now able to to be teaching each other and sharing what they're they're discovering. And that's something unprecedented, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Also, in academia, thanks to great scholars like uh, Wouter Honograph, I'm pronouncing that right, um, there's a different viewpoint on all of this. So his viewpoint is, first, that it's not our job to decide if this stuff is true or false. It's our job to preserve it and to present it with as much accuracy and completeness as we can. Also, he has pointed out that there is room for what he calls Gnostic scholars, I don't know if he uses scholars, but for, for people who are not only students, but practitioners. And in fact, I have found a bunch of people in academia who behind the scenes are, are very active in the belief systems that they are, are studying. And that's really new because that was something that would have been looked down upon, really just censored even 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, like because the belief or the being a practitioner would interfere with your objective scholarship. Exactly. Right? And so if you were a practitioner, you had to be a kind of rogue scholar like yourself or Stefan Huller or mm -hmm. Manly P. Hall. Mm -hmm. And yeah. now so the attitude are changing. It is. And the attitude now is that 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 it's possible that only a practitioner can really dig into it because they they're yeah, the ones who are as practitioners we it. know that yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. yeah they're finally catching yeah. up so that's that i think for that reason there is yeah. this explosion going on in this area and i think that there's also a you know the the monotheistic patriarchal monotheism has led us to a lot of dead ends that are becoming all too obvious to everyone at this point. And, and there is a yeah. precipitous decline in interest in traditional religions because of that. And now that you have access to all this stuff, for me, for example, as I said early in our discussion, I, when I was looking for answers, even though they were the wrong answers, I didn't know, I, you know, I thought, well, you gotta go to Satanists. There's nothing else there. Mm -hmm. Well, there's so much there. I mean, just even in American history, if you're just interested in America, there's almost anything you can think of is back there. They've tried everything. And it's so exciting, I think, to, and I do believe, by the way, that this is the secret to the similarity of Manley Hall and Carl Jung is, is this thirst for, for, for the knowledge of world culture, everything mm -hmm. about it and how it applies to uh, human spirituality, Mr. Hall would probably use that word, but Jung would probably use something else. But 
but I think that is is a big part of it, and that thirst for discovery and and seeing these similarities and mm-hmm. it's such a wonderful uh, experience when you you are digging through these materials and you find these connections. Yeah, and I mean, at a time when our culture is becoming more of a global culture, we need more of a. a a universal approach to spirituality that sees the value in all of the diverse uh, traditions. Um, we need that more than ever if we're going to have harmony in this global world. Um, so it seems like the time is is ripe, uh, where the spirit of the times is uh, is being met with this cultural shift. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about your book, and I wanted to touch on this before we end our conversation, is that you talk about what the uh, intersection of the European settlers was with the indigenous Native Americans. Now, this has not been something I'd really read much about at all, that there was actually a kind of exchange or um that some of the European settlers respected what they encountered with the tribes. Could you talk a little bit about this and, um, sure. you know, if it was a new discovery for you as you started to research the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised at first that there was such an interest among some of the earliest writers and explorers in in the culture, indigenous culture, and how there was this sense that maybe they had something that Europe could could really learn from. So for example, you had Roger Williams in Rhode Island, and you had John Winthrop Jr. in Connecticut, and you had even earlier, you had Thomas Harriot, who was brought, probably was the first scientist in America doing alchemical experiments on the beach. And we've even found ruins they're, they're like broken alchemical alembics and things that probably belong to him. Mm-hmm. And, and although he wrote this, this kind of awful book about the new world where he, he has this refrain that he uses constantly, which is we took it and ate it. And this, they mm-hmm. ate everything, things that people just shouldn't eat, but they, they he was really writing a business plan for why we should exploit this continent. I always look at it as the first, and there it is. There's the whole corporate future of America in one little book. Yeah, but, uh, and, and so it was a list of all of the different natural resources and how they could be exploited or used or exactly. extracted. how superior yeah. they were. It was like a, yeah, kind of a devil's shopping list or something. That's beautifully put, yeah. And yet the same guy was so interested in indigenous culture that he invented an alphabet to try to capture the language. There was great mm-hmm. interest in dreams and what how they they felt about dreams. There was interest in the fact that they seemed to have superior physiques with superior senses where they could see much further than than the, the pilgrims could see. But also writers who recognized that the respect that the indigenous people gave to their elders and the tenderness with which they treated their children reflected badly on Europe. And mm-hmm. also that that when they were captors in battles that were taken into indigenous tribes at, at this time in this place, they were made members of families and treated like children in the family. 
something that was very different from how the pilgrims were allowing other pilgrims to starve. When they had somebody like Thomas Morton, there's another guy that should be mentioned here, the pagan pilgrim, that that he was offering to hunt for them. And they the elite pilgrims said, sure, you can we'll let you out of your jail cell to hunt for us, but but no, you don't hunt for the poor. So this man, he was sent out by the Cavaliers, rounding up our conversation. And our he was the Cavalier. <laughs> and he was meant to to start a trading post and to try to bring something to compete with the pilgrim mentality into the English colonies there. He opened up something that he called Marymount or Mary Mount. And and typical of the Cavaliers, this had many puns in it, including um, having a fun mount, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. and also it was a, there was a, Ro a, a Latin joke about male genitalia in there. And and uh, he built a, a he had a maypole erected for May 1st and he invited no all the the local trappers, outlaws, indigenous tribes, pirates. I mean, anybody that wanted to come, including the pilgrims, were invited. Sounds like a good party. It was the first wild party ever closed down by the authorities. He was also the, in America. Oh. It was the first, uh, he was the first person to ever publish a fart joke in America. And he was also the that. first person to be foreclosed <laughs> upon in American history. All things that the pilgrims they were they were after him, and eventually they 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 treated him horribly. They they tried to starve him to death. They imprisoned him. They eventually ended the Marymount experiment. But Marymount was this whole other America. It was a place where everyone was welcome, where he cared about the dreams of of the indigenous people and about their relationships, and they cared about him. And it, it's like this this other shadow side of America that we've all yeah. forgotten about. And finally, of course, yeah, I mean, well, it was like another, another alternate path that America could have taken, you yes. know, like there was a, a different kind of promise uh, happening there that exactly. unfortunately just, um, you know, they were probably just a little too kind of proto hippie-ish to, to fight back well enough, you know? Well, they were they were overwhelmed by the hatred and the the and the use of force. Eventually, they showed up to arrest him. He he called. Uh, I mean, he had these nicknames for them, like Captain Shrimp and stuff like that. They they just hated that. But he they said he said that they showed up and they were so savage. He says that if there hadn't been an old veteran there to stop them, that they would have just literally torn him apart. Yeah, like and, one guy who knew how to fight. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the he he basically was disempowered legally. And and at one point he won back some power, but there were so many changes of government going on in England that that he didn't really have much of a chance. And plus he was sent there when he was 50 years old. He founded Marymount at the age of 50, which in itself is kind of amazing for that time when 50 was quite advanced. But his spirit is so different. It's so filled with humor and and bodiness and but also concern and, and compassion for people who are different than himself. He was compassionate about the pilgrims. He thought he thought it was tragic the way they were living. He tried, even though they were treating him that way, he tried to teach them to use lime when they built their their structures, because anytime it would rain, their structures were were falling apart. 
but they wouldn't do it because he told them that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've got a podcast coming out with a, a psychologist from San Francisco who's written a lot about uh, middle-aged men and what archetype is the kind of best guiding archetype for them. Um, and he he puts it forward that the trickster is something that older men um, need to embrace more of. And it it sounds like he had that that spirit, which uh, is all you know, obviously a, a kind of revered figure in indigenous society. And so maybe there was that affinity there, like the fart jokes, the making fun of Captain Shrimp, um, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of irreverent attitude. <clears throat> that is so at odds with the, the puritanical kind of uptightness, right. Yeah. That we uh, usually think of now. I wonder uh, if it's about time for America to find that trickster spirit uh, so that they can, so that we, you know, kind of in North America uh, can get along better here. And um, yeah, I just wonder if there's something to that, you know, if we kind of pull out and see, America in a kind of evolutionary process, if maybe it's not high time to bring back some of that trickster spirit and like the, com the compassion and the inclusiveness, the respect mm -hmm. for uh, others and diversity. I found that that one of the things that this book convinced me of was that that, that trickster archetype is, is just runs through, throughout American metaphysical religion. One of the things that shocked me was how often I found people who were frauds, but had really wise things to say and actually may have done some fairly good things outside the bad things that they did. I'll give you a really quick example is a fellow named Quimby, who was really the founder of the whole mind cure movement and was the person who gave Mary Baker Eddy the idea for it. She was one of his patients and he's been somebody held in spiritualist circles and in mind cure circles is this kindly, devout, wonderful old man who was just so holy and he, he could talk people out of illnesses, essentially, because he felt that the spirit was was much stronger than the body, if you will. So if you can align somebody properly with the divine and their spirituality wakes up, they can heal themselves instantaneously. And he had mm -hmm. thousands of letters and testimonials from people about cures that he did. Well, as academia caught up, they found that one, he cussed like a truck driver, as we would say these days. He was known to not only try to talk people out of their illnesses, but also to talk attractive women out of their corsets when he was treating them. And, <laughs> and he probably didn't write any of the writings that are attributed to him because he was illiterate. And probably the woman who worked for him wrote down his ideas in, in her eloquent way, and they've been attributed to him ever since. But the man still had some wonderful ideas. And my, one of my favorite sayings that I found while doing all this, it's just, it's so meditative in a, in a way, was he said that, I want to get this right. He said that health is how the body experiences the eternity of the soul. That's something to really think about. And mm -hmm. and then and I want to leave you with this about about Canada, because you have an interesting heritage to deal with. Speaking of tricksters, because of mm -hmm. Prince Rupert, 
And as you know, Prince Rupert was a major figure in the founding of Canada, and you have various places named after him there. And Rupert, who I write about in the Rosicrucian book, is a really difficult, complex, trickster kind of character who, on some levels, you just have to love this guy. He was the ultimate cavalier, the ultimate royalist. He was an alchemist. He was an artist. He invented navigational tools and all kinds of stuff and and tools for engraving. And uh, he was the kind of person who was imprisoned by the Habsburg emperor and a Habsburg noble came to visit him and was so charmed by him that he he said, you've got to meet him to the emperor. And the emperor met him and, and said, please move in and I'll give you lands and titles and everything. I just want you to hang out in my court. And Rupert said, no, no, I would kill my mother if I if I became a Catholic, because you would have to become Catholic to do that. And so he became notorious during the English Civil War because he had this dog, Boy, who was a white poodle who was very daring in battle. And the Puritans were terrified of this dog. They said it had witch powers. And so the Cavaliers thought this was hilarious. So they wrote a pamphlet about the witch dog that fought in their army. And they all would like kneel on one knee and they would they would hoist drinks to this dog. And it was a terrible tragedy when the dog was killed. It was the first time that Rupert ever lost a battle. And he also had a monkey that he would dress up in a little uniform that would be in battle with him, a little she monkey. And in the end of his life, he would walk with this big black dog and he was forgotten at that point. He married like some notorious actress and and he lived a quiet life exploring alchemy and esoteric subjects. And he would take these long walks with his black dog and they would say, oh, there goes that wizard. Well, Rupert was somebody who who was instrumental in Virginia colony and also in the first Canadian colonies. And it was the first governor, really, of, of the first colony there. And yet we have to deal with the fact that Rupert is the guy who established the slave trade on behalf of the Storts. He was sent by James into Africa. He was he, he reached areas of Africa before anybody else did and mapped them. And he encountered tribes, he was looking for gold, but he encountered tribes that were practicing the enslavement of people and for profit. And he thought, since I haven't found any gold, this looks like a good business. And James came back and said, yeah, 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 let's do this. And this is what established this shameful tradition in North America of slavery that, that enriched the Puritans, the pilgrims so much. So he's so problematic because you want to love this guy when you read about him in detail, but then you see that he he did one of the most horrendous acts in the history of the colonization of North America. Yeah. Again, a trickster well, a kind of, that, of a thing. Yeah, well, yeah. But also, I mean, they were really uh, kind of victims of the time. Um, they were just dumb about some stuff, you know. Uh, but yeah, pr there's a place in our province not far from here uh, named after prince rupert but i don't know anything about the guy but yeah he sounds like a fascinating character I check him so, out. so uh, he's gonna he, <laughs> yeah thanks for he that is, i really appreciate character. that <laughs> i mean that that's kind of i'm about one third of the way through american metaphysical religion it is a sprawling tome and uh you know you 
you're kind of tracking all of these threads from Europe back to America. Um, it, it's quite amazing. And it's just, uh, it's really eye-opening. It really broadens my perspective of the past of uh, oh, North you. America. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you're going to continue being a kind of uh, a lay scholar of sorts and a translator of academic um papers into mm -hmm. something that more people can read yeah. you know your story reminds me quite a bit of gary lockman another former rock and roller who I, he worked at the bodhi tree as far yeah. as i know and yeah picked he, up he actually on tour and he writes about that in in my book actually about when he worked at the bodhi tree he was kind enough to give me uh, some reminiscences of that and and mm. yeah he's been very very supportive very cool guy um and it also it's it, there's a little bit I, an influence on me a little bit is also Colin Wilson, uh, the, mm -hmm. the the tone that he took in a sense and the way that he the way that he would synthesize so many apparently separate uh, subjects into something that really turns out to be very related, and mm -hmm. uh, that's somebody that that definitely uh, has influenced me. But obviously, it's the Manly Hall influence. I mean, part of part of my my meaning in doing this book was to 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 update some of his work with the latest mm. research. That's great. I mean, that's the best way to honor a revered teacher is to continue their legacy and continue to, um, uh, yeah, update the work as we learn more and as, um, you know, language changes, you know, mm -hmm. you want people to be able to still relate to it. Exactly. So is the Philosophical Research Society, is it still there and open yes. to the public? It's still there. Oh. And I, I, they're having great events, all kinds of interesting things going on. It's not only about spirituality and metaphysics, but all kinds of culture. They've had some great, like really rare horror movies screening there. And They've got great art exhibits, uh, early, early cinema stuff. It's great. It's it's developing into a little cultural hub. And they honor Manley Hall regularly and still carry all his stuff. And it's really quite beautiful. It's had a very stormy, difficult time of it. And I'm hoping that that, that this new group of people that have, have, uh, have sort of clustered around, there's some people that have been there for ever since Manley Hall, but there are new people that have been brought in to run some of the things and and they seem to be doing a wonderful job. And if you're ever in the area or anybody who lives in this area, it's a great place to go wander around and find really it's just just the library itself. Just walking around in it kind of gives you goosebumps because it's so filled with wonderful things. Yeah. And so are you and Tamara involved with the place? Uh, we're going to be you know, uh, we're going to do something. I'm not sure exactly what yet. It's a it's a strange thing for us. I've only been back there uh, once or twice. It's a very strange experience having spent seven years there with him and then leaving. And then when I go back, even though I love seeing it and I love to be around people who appreciate him, it it's like walk it's like if you had served Pharaoh and now there was only a tomb. All the stuff is still there, but Pharaoh's not. <laughs> and if you knew Pharaoh, mm -hmm. it's tough to be there. <laughs> That's part of it, but yeah. we do plan to do some things with them, and we want to help them uh, get the get the word out, and definitely continue to support their activities. Well, I mean, I can't believe I missed it. You know, when I was in LA, I went to um, Yogananda's place, the Lake mm -hmm. Shrine, and 
um, it was so kind of uptight. I remember um, I was walking around the lake with some friends and I had a little wooden flute and we came upon this statue of Krishna, who's famous for playing his flute yeah. for all the gopis and uh, delighting everyone, you know. And so I pulled out my little flute and I played a little tribute to Krishna and somebody all of a sudden out of the woods came around with like a button up shirt and a, a placard on their chest said, you can't play music in here. And I was like, Oh, wow. I totally really lost terrible. the spirit of this place. Like <laughs> I'm sure Yogananda wouldn't have chastised me for right. playing a flute like Krishna, you know, it was just kind of so uptight. And then Damn um, hippie. there's a, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's like that uh, that Vedantic temple right in in Hollywood. Like, yeah, uh, and I remember going there, and it had that same kind of vibe. It was like the spirits left this place. It's like a dusty, uh, I don't know, relic yeah. or something. Um, I know what you're talking like the, about. The, the characters that get these places started uh, carry so much of the the spirit of it, and um, I think you know. You, you probably carry some of that spirit and I'm sure that's what Manly P. Hall saw in you. Um, some of that maybe same kind of trickster spirit, the cavalier attitude about uh, some of this stuff and lack of stuffiness, you know? So um, thanks for sharing some of these stories with us and uh, looking forward to the books coming out down the road. Sound great. I look forward to further conversations with you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, man. We'll have to talk rock and roll sometime. And yeah, uh, yeah definitely. Yeah. I want to hear all the about part those that guitars. that plays in our and, yeah, yeah, and like the part it plays in our lives. And uh, you know, rock and roll is a kind of um, mystical, magical, spiritual practice in itself, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Ronnie. Um, take it easy. Uh, stay dry. I know it's raining a lot Thank there you, in buddy. LA. So take care and we'll and all see you, you all you up in Canada, take your cold back. We don't want it. <laughs> it's too cold oh, down come here on. right now. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful spring day here. We're on a special uh, part of uh, Vancouver Island, right at the southern tip. It's um, nothing like what people think of in Canada. It's like a temperate rainforest. So beautiful. it doesn't even rain as much as Seattle. Uh, it's it's lovely. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah. So come on up and see us sometime. We got a lot of people who love metaphysical religion up here. Cool. Yeah, I love it up there. Yeah. I, I, those rainforests are just, it's one of those beautiful places on earth. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I pulled a tarot card as we were talking. Can you guess which one it is? Just take a wild guess. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't disrespect take, what, oracles. What, what is it into though? your head? Who are we talking about here? I mean, the hermetic revival. Well, the hermit. Ah, Another. Well, okay, then I'll turn haired sage. Okay, here's the perfect way to finish this then. When you would go to Manly Hall's house, there was a, an oil painting kind of thing that was up on the outside inside this covered alcove that you could look at to your right when you were waiting for the door to be answered. And what it depicted was a small, like uh, medieval or Renaissance village, and then a long trail up to where the hermit lives. Oh, cool. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Ronnie. You're welcome. <laughs> we'll talk to Thanks, you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your favorite app, share it with a friend, 
or leave us a review. If you're interested in joining the conversation, head on over to the Medicine Path online community and School of Soul Studies at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and the rains fall soft upon your fields. Until we meet again on the Medicine Path. Yeah.